you would uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, where we are embarking on a new study. Having gone through a select portion of John, we're turning our attention now to the book of Acts, and we'll be here for I don't know how long. Not too long, but not too short, somewhere in between. Page 909 of your blue Bibles in front of you, if you're using those. Man, it's really good. You might not get this experience, but so I just want to tell you, it's really great to come up and preach when your sleeves are still wet with the water of baptism. Just like, all right, the Lord just reminding me. That he's at work and we, we can, we can trust him. This morning, we're going to start a study in the book of Acts. And this, uh, this book is a history book written by a man named Luke that tells us the story of what Jesus did and taught after he left this world. After he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Listen to how Luke starts the book in the first five verses. In the first book. O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you see that that little phrase, all that Jesus began to do and teach? As if what's about to come is all that Jesus will continue to do and teach, even though he himself is leaving. Luke's gospel and this book of Acts are a two-part historical series. So if you would turn uh, over to the book of Luke for just a moment, the beginning of Luke, page 855 in those blue Bibles, we want to get in at the ground, at the ground floor, at the beginning of Luke's history and see what it was he was doing in writing these events down. Theophilus is the guy he's writing to, um, we don't know much about him other than this. Presumably, he's a, a, maybe a young believer. And here we go. Luke 1. Luke starts his gospel this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus was not a firsthand eyewitness of the life of Jesus. Perhaps he's kind of a generation now removed. The history of Jesus told by the eyewitnesses who saw them is meant to give all who hear it a certainty about what you're hearing. A certainty that Jesus did these things. And a certainty that what Jesus 
taught is true and that he is to be believed. The certainty Luke's gospel brings is that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen king. And the book of Acts brings certainty that Jesus the king is advancing his kingdom on earth through his church. This is why I chose to preach through this book. We just finished life with God. Now we are going to join that with our life in Christ's kingdom. As we go through this series, I trust that Jesus will teach us what it means to live in his kingdom and show us how he intends to build his kingdom through us. Now, as we come to the beginning of Acts, we are not at the beginning of Jesus' kingdom rule. So much has already happened that leads up to this. But we are at a major transition point. Jesus has finished with what he came to do. And he's going to leave his disciples right at the start of this book. The rest of the book will focus on the people he left and the work that Jesus accomplishes through them. So what began with one man is now 12 men in Jerusalem and several other disciples. And in the time it takes for this book to happen, by the end of it, there will be thousands in Christ's kingdom. And the geographical boundaries of Jesus' rule have expanded to the opposite end of the known world in Rome, Italy. So as we come into the beginning, the first two chapters especially lay out some important things for us to see. These opening chapters serve as kind of a foundation that will carry us through the whole book. And though communicating these things right at the outset, Luke wants us as the church to not only have certainty that these things did happen, but to see that even now in what Christ is doing through his church today, we are welcomed in to take part in how Jesus is continuing To expand his kingdom. So here's where we're going this morning. In Acts 1. We learn that when Jesus left. He left chosen witnesses with his spirit. To spread the word about his kingdom. And there are three foundational things. That we learn about how Jesus was going to build this kingdom. That will be my outline. Three things we learn here. About how Jesus will build his kingdom. First. The king will build his kingdom through a message. The king has a message. Second, the king sends messengers. And thirdly, the king's messengers use the king's means. The king's messengers use the king's means. Refer back to what we just read in verse 1 through 5. After living with the disciples for three years, working miracles, teaching them, dying and rising, Jesus was, was set on his disciples understanding two things. One, that he really did rise from the dead bodily. As a human and as God, he walked out of the grave. And that this reality, his resurrection connects to a greater reality of his kingdom. We're going to keep coming back to this idea of the kingdom. 
And in the second point this morning, we'll get more clarity about what that means for us now. But even at the beginning of Acts, we find Jesus emphasizing and drilling into his witnesses, I am the king over life and death. So when we talk about living now in the kingdom of Jesus, we are describing an experience of living under an alive person who reigns and rules, the one who brought eternal life. We are describing the reality in which a person, you and I, can come under that rule of him who cannot even be conquered by death. Coming under the reign of the one who can bring us from death into life. For you, if you don't know this king, that is the message for you this morning. That Christ, the perfect son of God, came to die in your place. To take your sin that would have deserved the full wrath of God on you. And Jesus took it. Though he was the son of God. He came and became like us to take our punishment and our sin on the cross. So effective and so sufficient was his death and so perfect was his sacrifice that death had no claim on him. He came out of the grave victorious over the sins of anyone who will place your sin on him as he dies and trust in him to walk you into new life. That is the message of a resurrected and risen king that you need to hear. Even as Mike confessed to hearing it earlier that for years he sat in proud pride and arrogance. And yet God kept giving the message and one day awoke him to see that the reign of Christ is good for him. To be welcomed and leads him to life. You need to hear that. You need to hear that. There is a king who can't be bound by what binds us. There was a king who didn't sin like we sin. There's a kingdom where sinners can have their sins paid for and their bondage to sin broken and your future become life and not death. Jesus Christ is the king and he has a message they took great care to preserve and leave before he left. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me also say, I think the resurrection of Jesus is one of the things that keeps people skeptical about Christianity. And let let me just challenge you on that. Let me me ask you, how much much have you given to study the historicity of Jesus' resurrection? Are you interested to even discuss and think about whether or not actually the Gospels are telling the truth? If you'd like to, I'd welcome the opportunity to sit with you and talk to you about that. I believe that your eternal life rests on that truth. And I would love for you to come see that and believe it so that you might have life. The Christian life happens under the rule of a living king. The resurrection of Jesus is the banner under which you and I, members of this church and Christians, that's the banner under which we march. Yesterday, after Imogene's memorial service, I had a a man come up to me afterwards and he commented that this was the first Baptist church building that he's been in where there wasn't a big cross hanging on some wall. It's the first time I noticed it. He brought it to my attention. I asked him, I said, first I asked him, do you have any background with Christian faith? He said, no, not any to speak of, but apparently he's been to a lot of churches. 
And I told him, I said, I suppose we don't hang a cross in our building because that's not the whole message of Christianity. Jesus isn't only the one who died. He's the one who is alive. After that interaction, I began to wonder what effect it has on our Christian lives to only have the cross in view when we think about the gospel. Won't we, over time, kind of develop a sort of lopsided identity, like a a person who goes and works on the gym but only works on the right bicep? That we're sinners constantly needing to remember Jesus had to die. But for what? That Jesus was the suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom. But to what end? At the very least, our understanding of the cross should come with a majestic gleaming crown over it. At the very least, to indicate that Christ long ago left the cross. Marched through the grave, ascended to sit in authority to rule all things. We serve a risen Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality through light in the gospel. So how then should we live? To what end did he die? To what end did he rise? We should live holy. The king's message calls us to holy living. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Brother and sister, every time we choose to sin, we claim that either the cross wasn't effective enough to make us new. Or the risen king doesn't rule over that part of our lives. Both are lies. So if any of us, and I preach to myself as I preach to you, I confessed this myself as as Noah was leading us in confession. I see the pride of my heart that Mike described. I see it in me. If any of us are in a pattern of proud sin, be it idolatry or apathy or refusing to believe Jesus' words because we want a different way for us, you need to hear the gospel of King Jesus Who lays claim to every aspect of every life that his blood has purchased. We must never claim that there is a place in his kingdom of life where death can remain. And where sin is allowed to reign over his blood bought subjects. If we are committed to live with our sin. We cannot live in his kingdom. How should we live? We should live holy. But also, how should we live? Hopefully. Hopefully. Yes, we still live under weights and hardships that you may be feeling acutely in the place where you sit right now. But death is not a law of gravity that remains over us. It cannot hold us in the grave. So we can speak with each other. As if the king of life lives in us because he does. We can even speak together in grief at the grave with tears in our eyes. But peace in our heart because Jesus Christ lives. We can encourage each other that he is working in our lives from his position. 
as the living king. The king has a message. He is risen and he is reigning. Secondly, the king sends his messengers. Look at verse 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word apostle that Luke uses to describe the, the once twelve uh, disciples, now eleven apostles, means sent ones. They remain followers of Jesus, of course, but now in verse 8... The disciples are commissioned to go as Jesus' global witnesses. What I find fascinating about this section is the way that the apostles misunderstand Jesus' kingdom. Especially how it works and how Jesus works. So, so in, in verse 6, they come with the first question to Jesus, which shows that they think that the way Jesus will bring about his kingdom is through his ongoing earthly presence. So, so now he's back with them, and now he's alive, and the apostles seem to assume that now must be the time when Jesus will start reigning on earth. Uh, Jesus disavows them of that notion because in just a few moments he leaves them and goes into heaven. The second way it seems that they misunderstand the kingdom is in that interaction with the angels who appear as the apostles are watching and waiting for Jesus' return. It's not clear to me what they're waiting for. I assume it's the immediate return of Jesus, but it's it's not totally clear from the text. But the angels encourage them, whatever it is, it's kind of like, hey, this is not where you should be. Let's get on with the thing that Jesus just told you that you're supposed to be about, to be my witnesses. You know, in all the earth. Now, in between those two misconceptions is that clarifying command of how Jesus' kingdom will now grow through the global work of the messengers he sends to tell that they've seen the risen king. Verse 8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. I see the same uh, misconceptions springing up among Christians today. There are those who live expecting that the next politician or the next novel insight from some writer or speaker or the next geopolitical event is the definite sign that Jesus is finally establishing his reign. There are others who are passive, just kind of content to go on with life as usual with little awareness that the king gave them agency in his kingdom. Now, by dismissing or correcting the apostles' misconceptions and giving them the command in verse 8 instead, Jesus, you see, is telling them positively how he's going to build his kingdom. Not by political force, not by earthly reign, 
Not by immediately coming back right after he ascended, but by a process. A process whereby his messengers spread his news all over the world. Now consider that Jesus is saying all this against the backdrop of the Roman Empire. The most powerful military force to date at this point, the largest empire. A kingdom that spread through dominance and might. And Jesus says, my kingdom will grow without its king here. It will grow through spiritual power expressed through words about a risen king carried by witnesses who saw me alive when I was here. And not only will it grow, but unlike Rome, this kingdom will never end. We are engaged, church, in a mission to see the news of the risen king reach every people. To have them know what we know, that Jesus lives and rules and his reign is relevant to them as it is to us. There is no entity or organization that can claim that as their Christ-given priority outside the church. That is ours, and it is ours to do. We must be careful to not get confused about what we are doing. We are not building a kingdom. We are carrying news of a king. So we must stay mobile. We must stick to the message, and we must be willing to go. Now, as we go through Acts, we're going to watch this big picture storyline follow and trace the geographical markers laid out in verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Notice the power of the message the king gives. When shared, it grows. But notice also the scope of this work. In order to fulfill this mission, the witnesses must keep going where the news currently isn't. So may that be an ambition we have as a church that motivates our ministry. That our prayers and our giving and our efforts be expended to deliver the message to our neighborhood first. And then through our church to this city. And then to the missionaries we support and send to other countries. And ultimately through all the people of God in all the world that we'll never meet. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Now helpfully for us as we think about that task and how big the scope is. Thankfully we don't need to have a plan for this work. Jesus seems to dissuade the apostles from trying to figure it all out in verse 7. He says, there are things for the Father to know. This is what you need to do. We don't need to know how the king is putting all the pieces together. We just need to go to the people and places where we are. Near your home. In your home. In your job. In your community. With our friends and our families. And then be willing to go further when he leads us to. That's the second aspect of the kingdom. And how... Christ will grow it. He will grow it through sending his messengers. And then thirdly, we see from Acts 1, the kingdom's growth happens as the king's messengers use the king's means. King's messengers use the king's means. 
I'm going to read verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be none to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So after Jesus ascends, a transition takes place. Jesus now gone, now his message rests with his appointed messengers on earth. Without Jesus to restore the kingdom, without any sense that Jesus is coming back anytime soon, the apostles must now begin living in this new reality. Now Jesus had told them this day would come. And when it did, they could be sure they'd have what they needed. We heard Jesus tell the disciples in John. That he would send the Holy Spirit who would teach them and guide them according to Jesus' words. And now they begin living that out. Now just to set this up, which we'll come back to over and over. Which may just be a lingering question from the beginning you have in your mind. Throughout the book of Acts, we are going to see regularly the apostles do things that leave us wondering, does that still happen today? We'll question whether we should expect to see miracles today like the ones they performed. Uh, Certainly, there's a major difference between the apostles and us. And it pops up in, in this text several times. For example, they saw Jesus risen. We've never seen that. They lived at a moment in history when Jesus was using eyewitnesses and his Holy Spirit's evident signs to establish the church at the beginning of the church. We're not in that age. Now we live in an age where we pass the message by ear and through mouth, not by the eye. And we've inherited something that is the old, old story, which for the apostles was brand new. Some of them received special inspiration from the Holy Spirit to write down the New Testament scriptures. We don't think we're in that position. Instead, we receive those scriptures. 
We read them and we trust them to be sufficient for us and all who come after us. But even so, there's still a great deal that's the same. No, we're not eyewitnesses of the king, but we are ambassadors. We're spreading the gospel message we've heard. The scope of our work is no smaller than the apostles, perhaps even bigger, because so many more people live on the earth than when they were living. So as we watch the king's messengers go with his message, I think we can understand primarily that we have the same mission. And so as we watch how they go, we learn what it means to be the king, to be the king's messengers and the means he gives to all of us. There are four means, I think, that are here for the king's messengers in Acts 1. They're a combination of the things he brings and the responses he calls us to make. These four things will be how I kind of finish our sermon. The first thing, the first means... To use as the king's messenger is the Holy Spirit's power. We're going to think about that more this next week. But notice that before he tells the apostles to go, he prefaces and emphasizes that they must not go without the Holy Spirit empowering them, empowering their work. Look at verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. Jesus' kingdom grows on the basis of his power, not ours. Any efforts that we make for the kingdom of God that are not reliant on the king's power to be the thing that affects change are destined to fail. The power to heal, the power to restore, to save, to change comes from God and comes through his spirit. Our words are not powerful in themselves. Our loving service does not contain supernatural elements on their own. But they are the things that the spirit promises to work through. How emboldening that is. I think this truth That the Holy Spirit is promised to attend the work of God among his people to extend the kingdom. I think that's why I get into this pulpit when I get the chance. I think it's pretty much the only reason why I step into this pulpit. Because the Lord truly does know how inadequate I feel my words are. But he has shown time and time again that the kingdom work depends on his spirit and his word. And I am emboldened by that. I preach it to myself. I'm so eager for what we're planning, hopefully, to decide tonight. And you welcoming me as your new lead pastor. I'm so thankful for the affirmation we've asked the Spirit of God to give us. Has led us as a people to lead us to know that this is what we should do next. But before you vote, let's be absolutely clear. I am not intending to bring any power to this job. And I want you to help me. That if you see me trying to bring my power into this role, help me know how to let it go and trust in the Spirit. 
When you commit your life to Christ's body here or somewhere else, when you make the effort to gather for worship, when I and the other pastors commit our lives to serving here as Christ did as shepherds, and we make an effort to lead you with his word, we together know we don't need more human attempts at power. (laughs) No, the church should be a sweet refuge from that kind of thing. From the clamor and the clawing outside, the ruthless ambition and the greed, the unsatisfied efforts of people who pursue glory with all their own strength. Instead, inside Christ's people, there's rest because the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to our God who sits on the throne. And the way he uses that power is to spread a kingdom through messengers who have come to experience for themselves the goodness and grace that his rule provides in our lives. That's the first means, the power of the Holy Spirit. The second is our patient prayers. After receiving clear direction about the task ahead, the apostles go back to a quiet room and go to work, praying and waiting. That's in verse 12 through 14. You know, this is the first instance Where we see all the people who believe in Jesus acting as one unified body. And what are they doing? They're praying. Actively engaged in talking to God and waiting on God. What do you suppose they were praying for? Don't you think they're praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit? That was, after all, what Jesus said they were to wait for. They don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know the circumstances they're about to be thrust into. They'll be the context for their witnessing ministry. But they know the power of the Holy Spirit is coming. So I assume they were praying for that to be given to them. May that request mark our prayers. Let us pray with faith. Not like the double-minded man in James 1 who isn't sure of what he asked. We can have confidence that this is the prayer Jesus loves to answer. Luke 11.13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And when we pray for the Spirit, we pray with patience because Jesus' kingdom work happens on His time, not ours. How freeing that is. Jesus doesn't expect us to control outcomes. He doesn't defer to us on what the best time to move will be. Instead, he he prescribes a method that primes our hearts to want him to work as he will and to watch and wait as he works according to his will. We are witnesses who pray for God to prepare who we go to, where we go to, when we go. We are witnesses who prepare for opportunities by asking for readiness in God's appointed moments to God's appointed audience, to receive God's powerful message from us. So we're going to keep pursuing prayer together as a church. Not out of duty, but out of expectancy. And we'll keep encouraging each other to wait on the Lord, to work, and through what we've asked, it really does matter that we gather and pray. This is a major way Jesus calls us to engage in his kingdom advance. And we want as many of our members to be able to engage in that as possible. Not just individually, but together. 
as elders, we are thinking about whether or not to move our midweek prayer times to another time, perhaps on Sunday. And potentially have some discipleship ministry for our young ones during our prayer time in order to engage us all in Christ's kingdom work. So if that practical change, moving our corporate prayer times from Wednesday night to Sunday, would help you join us in prayer more regularly, could you please let one of the elders know that? And if you're able now, until we make that change, or if we never make that change, please make every effort to join us when we pray. The way forward in Christ's kingdom work is prayer together. The third means King Jesus gives to us to use as his messengers is the Holy Spirit's word. I'm not going to read verse 12 through 26 again, nor does time allow me to comment on everything that's written here. For those less familiar with the gospel accounts, Jesus originally called 12 disciples, but one of them named Judas Iscariot chose to sell information about where Jesus was going to be so that Jesus's enemies could arrest him. And that betrayal set in motion the events that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this passage in Acts gives the tragic end of Judas' story. His desire for money became the agent of his downfall. Let his death serve as a warning to anyone here who is attempting to serve God in money. You cannot do both. And if money is your God, it will destroy you. But why does Luke record this? I mean, it's like, I mean, there's a lot of detail here. Why? Is it simply to know the rest of the story? Whatever happened to that Judas guy? No. These details serve a bigger purpose in Luke's narrative. To show how the apostles began to be led by the Holy Spirit, using the word of God to direct this new people of God. So the verses you probably have in quotations come from the Psalms. They're attributed to a divine author speaking through a human author, David. And as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit is giving the apostles now insight and understanding into what these Old Testament verses mean. Whereas before Jesus ascended, the disciples were still trying to figure out what every one of Jesus's words meant. Now they're reading century-old prophecies from Scripture and clearly understanding their nature as prophecy, which is being fulfilled in their time. I mean, that's an indication that some big change has happened. The Holy Spirit has come, is coming, and helping them understand the Scriptures. Christian, whether you realize it or not, when you pick up God's Word and come to it with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you have the capacity to hear the Word, receive the Word, understand the Word, and obey the Word. And and whether you remember what it was like to be Mike and Jenny not too long ago, Before Christ saved them. Whether you remember that in your own life or not. I can assure you. Your interaction with God's word. Was not always that clear. The Holy Spirit has come to do something in you. To enable you to come alive. And his word to come alive to you. The means given to us to hear and follow our king. Is the king's authoritative word. That the spirit ministers to our minds and hearts. The apostles are giving fresh insight and inspiration to write it down for all time. And as we receive the words written, we are given insight that affirms what the apostles passed down. So, it's his word, not ours. As we think about the kingdom, how hopeful that is. 
I say hopeful because I think you and I both know the flakiness and the brittleness of human words. You can yell at a person. You can command with all the force you can muster. You can woo. You can seek to persuade. But if it's all just your words, what reason? What reason does someone else have to listen or follow you? What reason do you have to think your words alone carry any real authority? But God's word. God's word gives substantial direction and equally substantial reasons to follow. What's written in these pages is God's promised plan of what he's doing in the world to bring about his total kingdom rule on this earth. Every prediction, every prophecy, every story, every command comes invested with the absoluteness of God's existence and authority. What he says was, is, and will be. That this is his word, that this his word is hopeful. Well, that's because to adhere to it and commit to follow it means we can know we will be led by it to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. In all the uncertainty of what was ahead for these apostles, notice how confident Peter is to say God's word will be proved true. If the uncertainty of what you face this week is looming large, remember this. God's word will be proved true. The fourth means, and lastly, that the king's messengers use is our willing obedience. Having determined that the Holy Spirit directed them to appoint a twelfth apostle to replace Judas, the eleven go about appointing Matthias. But the way they do it reflects that they have a kind of prevailing sensitivity to obey in the way that the Lord would have them to obey. So they pray for the one that the Lord has chosen to be the one that they choose. They submit their decision to the Lord's guidance through the use of casting lots, rolling the dice, picking the short straw, whatever image comes to your mind. Interestingly... If this is curious to you, we see this method for divinely guided decision-making employed several times through the Bible up to this point. But after Acts 2 happens and the Holy Spirit falls and comes to indwell the church, we never see it used again. I doubt that's a coincidence. The Holy Spirit is always interested to show us the path of obedience. And he is always clear enough in his word to show us what to do next. So if you are facing a decision ahead of you, you can see what his word says. And like the apostles, talk about what it means with other believers. You can pray for his wisdom. You can determine what obedience looks like in light of his word. And you can ask him to confirm your decision. Look at all these means. We've been given by the king as his messengers to advance his kingdom. The Holy Spirit's power, our patient prayerfulness. The Holy Spirit's word, our willing obedience. These are the means at our disposal. So as we finish church, may we wholeheartedly be engaged in Jesus' kingdom plan. To rejoice ourselves in the message of our risen and reigning king. And to be deployed as our king's messengers wherever he'll take us. And to utilize these means 
that he has given us. And may Christ use his message carried by his spirit and his people to expand his kingdom all over the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning. And Holy Spirit, we trust you to work through it. We ask that you would, in your kindness and grace, apply the power of your word to our hearts and to our church. And pray that you would utilize us and use us. That we would rejoice not only that we get to be welcomed into your kingdom, but that we get to be utilized in your kingdom. To see it advanced as the message of you, the risen and reigning king, goes from our mouths into this world. Work powerfully through your means, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.